Suddenly, automation is changing our world faster than anyone anticipated. For technologists, the world is becoming convenient and high leverage. For non-technologists, the job market is evaporating and things are becoming confusing. Hasib Qureshi and Quincy Larson join me for a roundtable discussion on automation, jobs, and artificial intelligence. Hasib and I have had numerous discussions about this topic before over dinner, and Quincy is the founder of Free Code Camp, which teaches people to learn programming for free. If there is one upside to all these jobs being automated away, it's that it will lead to some massive user growth for Free Code Camp. I enjoyed talking to Quincy and Hasib as always. And if you're interested in hosting a show for Software Engineering Daily, we are looking for engineers and journalists and hackers who want to work with us on content. We want to be your podcasting back end. And it's a paid opportunity. We pay $300 for shows that we publish. And you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash host to find out more. Also, the Software Engineering Daily store is now open. If you want to spend some money and buy some branded t-shirts or hoodies or mugs and support the show while letting your friends know that you are a listener by having yourself branded, we'd really appreciate it. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash store to commercialize yourself. So let's get on with the show. Quincy Larson and Hasib Qureshi are returning guests to Software Engineering Daily. Today we're talking about a variety of topics in this Topic Roundtable episode. Hasib is currently an engineer at Airbnb, and Quincy Larson is the founder of Free Code Camp. Guys, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. The first topic I want to discuss is automation, and you both have had conversations with me about this. Quincy, you write a lot about automation. Your concerns, they get updated frequently. They tend to focus around the idea that a lot of people are going to be displaced by robotics, artificial intelligence. How are you thinking about automation and its threats to the social fabric these days? Well, I think automation is going to have the most immediate and significant impact on people who are ill-positioned to retrain themselves, uh, people who are already really busy taking care of uh, loved ones and people who are already working full-time, heads down on whatever job they have right now that's unfortunately soon going to be automated. And many of these people do not have a good baseline general knowledge. Um, They probably haven't graduated from university. Um, Many of them may have marginal literacy and numeracy. So we need to retrain these specific people as soon as possible so that they can continue to work productively and, and, uh, and care for their families. Well, actually, let me uh, make one point that I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of some of the arguments that people have made that uh, the the increase in automation is going to require lots and lots of people to retrain. I, I agree with that on its face, that lots of people are going to have to retrain in order to be effective in an economy that rapidly is displacing a lot of what were previously manual jobs. But I also, I also, uh, think it's kind of correct. Uh, I think, uh, this is an argument that, that uh, a lot of economists have made that it's not really realistic to train the majority of the population to be software engineers. And 
it's it's quite likely that we're going to have to find some fundamental way to rethink the role of work in human societies at a place where the market can no longer we we can no longer really assume that the market is going to do a good enough job of just you know having useful roles for people who don't have particular sets of skills in the right geographic areas i think it's just going to be more likely that we're going to see enormous and rapidly accelerating inequality in even a first world country like the united states uh, as a result of automation and i think i think it's a much bigger social problem and a much bigger refiguring of society we're going to have to do rather than just hoping that somehow we're going to be able to retrain everybody into roughly a like an employment terrain that kind of looks like what it does today i would agree with that on i do think that that's a little farther out though so my focus is on the next 15, 20 years. And I do think that there, it, it is realistic. I mean, at some point it will be, will reach a point where there's just so little work to be done and the work that needs to be done by humans will be so specialized. It'll be very hard. Like the, there'll be diminishing marginal benefit to retraining at some point. But I, I think that's far enough off that we should definitely invest a lot of time and effort in training so we can kind of bridge that gap. What about the automation of the white-collar jobs? Uh, so, you know, we hear about people talking about how oh, a lawyer is going to get automated or accountant is going to get automated. To me, these are jobs that seem mechanistic to people like software engineers, but if you zoom in and you actually look at the work that these people are doing something like accounting is actually much more complex and nuanced. This seems like a, a kind of area that actually will just be augmented and improved in quality by AI rather than having anybody be displaced except maybe some of the bean counters on the margins. Uh, are there white-collar jobs that you guys see as being particularly vulnerable to straight-up displacement? Well, I would say that, I mean, the, I, I, I don't know that I agree with the argument you just made because, like, I, I agree with you in the, the essence of what you just stated, which is that there are always going to be human lawyers. There are always going to be human accountants because you need somebody at the helm of that. It's not purely a mechanistic job because there is also a human organizational political component to all of those fields. That said, is your company going to need seven lawyers or will it just need one? Right. And that one lawyer being augmented by very, very advanced algorithms that can essentially do e-discovery for them or that can essentially, you know, uh, you know, collate giant pieces of data or, you know, basically intelligently review a contract much better than any human would be able to. Um, that, that sort of, uh, automation of what's right now a lot of sort of rank and file lawyer work, that is going to really radically change the, uh, proportion of society that can actually go and meaningfully be employed as a lawyer. You know, you just don't need as many lawyers. You don't need as many accountants because so many of them are doing work that is essentially, uh, you know, not, uh, not technologically insurmountable to solve. Right now we're not there yet, but eventually you can imagine with a human essentially leading a robot team, uh, not a robot team, but a, you know, a team of, of AI, uh, you can, you can get a lot farther with a small fraction of the professionals working in things like accounting or law or law or anything similar to that. Right. And, uh, just to, just to follow up what Hasib said, which I agree with 100%. This is probably the most widely misunderstood aspect of automation. People, uh, worry about automation like 
replacing their entire job like lock, stock, and barrel. But in practice, what happens is individual practitioners of that craft or that field become much more efficient and you need fewer of them. So the the team of 10 lawyers becomes one lawyer with really powerful e-discovery tools and really powerful uh, templating tools and, and a tool, maybe something like Watson that helps them through a lot of different workflows. And the consequences of that are going to be that only the very most skilled or in practical terms, the most senior are going to be able to retain their job. And the people who are newer to the field are going to get laid off. Hasib and I were originally poker players, and that's how we met playing online poker. And this week I was researching Libratus, which is this no limit hold'em artificial intelligence. And when I was researching it, I realized just how much it was crushing the humans it was playing against. So if Hasib and I would have stayed as poker players to this day, we would be on the cusp of just getting completely eliminated from our jobs because th- this AI is just so thoroughly good at poker. Uh, and while it is not in the wilds yet uh, playing online, I'm sure that something like it uh, will be out you know, within a year or two. Or maybe it is already online. I actually don't know. I'm not completely up to date with this. Uh, but I find it interesting that you know this is something that 10 years ago, Hasib, when you and I were playing, uh, we would not have uh, imagined, um, or at least I wouldn't have imagined that that this would actually happen. I, I assumed, oh, no limit is too. Uh, it takes too much creativity, and I mean, our our framework for artificial intelligence ten years ago, when we had no experience in computer science, obviously was pretty limited. Um, but what are the implications of this? I mean, what are the implications of the fact that you actually can build? a no-limit poker bot that can just crush all human competitors? So I, I, I would say two things. The first thing I'll say is that w- what it means for poker, or online poker specifically, is that uh, I think what it clearly means is that online poker is not... I mean, th- this is something that anybody who's in the online poker space is already aware of, but it's something of a death knell for online poker, because what it means is that uh, it, it, you know the only, Im- the only impediment to something like this basically taking up every single seat at an online poker game is its ability to get caught by anti-fraud systems at poker sites. And that's just a really, really hard problem to solve at scale is being able to detect a human versus a computer uh, based on what are signals that are mostly easy to fabricate uh, for, you know, if, if you have an online poker bot, it just makes a lot of money. And if you can make a lot of money, you can afford to invest a lot in fooling anti-fraud systems. So I think what that probably means is that the future of online poker players, or sorry, the future of professional poker players is going to be live. It's not going to be online poker. Uh, online poker is already on the decline. And I th- for the very, very highest stakes, that is, for, for small stakes, it's still a different story. Um, but I think you're just going to see more and more of that. Uh, as the stakes go up and the incentives go up to basically use very, very advanced neural nets that are essentially poker bots that can beat any human being, um, you're going to have to go to another domain to essentially get this more sportsman-like environment where you know I can ensure that you're not cheating or you're not doping or you know whatever the analog is for any normal physical sport. The second thing that I would say is that taking the domain of poker itself aside, I don't think it actually tells us anything that 
interesting that we didn't already know when we saw AlphaGo uh, beat the the best players in the world at Go. Go is, I mean, uh, I, I don't think you can take yourself seriously if you understand Go and understand poker and think that that wasn't a, that wasn't a judgment on essentially all games or all sufficiently constrained games eventually being susceptible to uh, having world-class human players beaten by AI at this point. Like, it, it's already been here for a year. We, we should have already seen it coming that uh, the, the reason why, you know, No Limit Hold'em, heads up No Limit Hold'em didn't already have the best players in the world beaten by AI was because nobody was spending enough money to build one. The game pieces in Go and poker are sufficiently easy to understand. I mean, the way that Libratus worked is they just taught it the rules of No Limit Hold'em, and then it figured out how to do things, uh, and it figured out how to win and create winning strategies. Do you think there are games... I mean, I know you haven't played much Magic the Gathering. I don't think you've played any Dominion. But there are these games that the the different directions that the game can go in are so complicated that it perhaps is harder to describe to a computer do you think can, can you imagine a game space like where where is the boundary because we can say like okay go and poker are very similar but obviously one is more complex than the other one has more potential game states than the other and you can imagine a game getting to a point where it is e- so complex that it is equivalent co- in complexity to something that we really don't know how to solve yet like um i don't know like being an engineer at airbnb uh, so what is the dividing line between those games that are solvable with this approach of here's the rules, go figure it out, and uh, you know the, the, the too complex to master from that strategy? I think, I mean, the, the way we generally think about this is by thinking about the branching factor of the game. And the branching factor, for those who are not familiar, is basically the idea of if you imagine a giant decision tree, the branching factor is the average number of branches that any particular decision branches into. So if the branching factor is two, you get this, you know, nice binary tree. If the branching factor is like 300, like it might be in something like Go, actually, I don't think it's that big. I don't recall exactly, but that's huge. And the, the, the final tree you end up with, there's no way you can search through every single node in that, in that gigantic tree. Um, so I think, you know, before, I think before AlphaGo, we tended to think like, oh, if the branching factor is high enough, then you're just, you're screwed. Like there's, there's, there's no way beyond it. And I think we've seen that neural nets can actually do a really good job with, with, uh, you know, searching through state spaces that have a very high branching factor. Poker is another example of this. Um, but the, I guess the one thing I would say is that there are some games that encode other games within them that are much, much more complex or encode other problems within them. So I'm, I'm imagining like, um, you know, some, here, here's an example of what you could call a game is, um, basically like online dating scams. Okay. So online dating scams is like, you know, basically you have some fake person, you pretend to, uh, you know, I, I don't know, maybe you're some scammer somewhere overseas. You find some fake person on OkCupid or Match.com or whatever. You pretend to be an attractive woman or an attractive man and you get them to fall in love with you and then you ask them to send you money. Right. Uh, so this is, you know, this, this is actually a pretty well constrained problem. There are clear inputs and outputs. Uh, but inside of that game is also the problem of natural language processing uh, and also the problem of like 
understanding human culture and human emotions, which is, I don't think, I don't think anyone even knows how to encode that in a, such a way that a computer could traverse that decision space. So I think the encodability into a human readable decision space is a large part of what makes it difficult to solve uh, some of these some of these problems, you know, something like uh, an AI for poker or for Magic the Gathering or StarCraft, so long as it's just a very discrete, finite decision space that you can clearly render for a computer, I, I have no doubt that AI is going to basically master all of those domains. The difficulty of something like an online dating scam or something like, you know, reviewing a contract is that it requires a lot of knowledge that sort of lifts up outside of the world of the, you know, the PDF file itself or of the, uh, you know, of the purely just the text that you've read, uh, of this, you know, person's profile or of, of the data that's actually on, you know, OkCupid or Mash.com or whatever. That's what I think makes it fundamentally difficult, is encoding data that we've never encoded and don't even really know how to encode. The reason I went from the discussion of what is going to be automated and how safe are white-collar jobs uh, to this discussion of poker is a lot of the intense deep learning research at a place like DeepMind they look first and foremost at games and how do we solve games, complicated games like StarCraft. And I think that's because you can draw conclusions from the results of these studies of games being solved by AI. You can draw conclusions around what is going to be automated first. What are the bellwethers of of automation? And Quincy, like you, I am very concerned about the next 10 to 15 years. I think if we can make it over that hump, we've got a real shot at getting to this glorious utopia where people can do whatever kind of work they want and they can get paid for it or they don't even have to get paid. You know, maybe there's basic income or something. All that kind of cotton candy dreamscape that we want to work towards, like that's fantastic, but we got to make it through these 10 to 15 to 20 to maybe 25 years where there are people who, who cannot... Who, who, who are not productive given the current workscape. And when I was working at Amazon, I would think about this question a lot um, because I was, I, I, was, I was thinking about the question of like, is Amazon a, like a, a job creator or a job destroyer? And I, I mean, I think it's just an incredible creator of jobs. And I think it's a creator of jobs that are durable even through the age of automation. Uh, and this is despite what people say about the robotics that people are putting, that Amazon is putting in its warehouses. Because if you look at Amazon's core business, the shipping and logistics of purchased goods, there are all these edge cases that are kind of tricky to solve and will, are probably more tricky to solve than the well-formed type of games that we're talking about that are going to be easy to solve early on. You have to handle these things like returns and restocking and all of the layers of human error that can occur where, you know, just all these different layers. And and then there's all this customer services associated with that. And then every year they shorten delivery time, which means that they're tightening up processes across the board. So, Quincy, when you look at a place like Amazon, do you see a, a potential stopgap in, you know, where you have these, you know, this like let's talk about like coal workers, right? Coal workers who have who don't know how to use email, they, um, you know, they're, they're just not technologically inclined, but they're hard workers, and they did a great job in the coal mines, but there's no more coal mine work. 
can these people just go to fulfillment centers and the fulfillment center becomes sort of their retraining ground while they are doing a kind of work that they can still get paid for? If Amazon were willing to take a chance on uh, coworkers, yeah, absolutely. I think realistically, though, they're so, in, in the United States at least, there's a very high rate of underemployment, which is basically people who have educational attainment that outstrips the requirements for, for their job. So, for example, somebody who has an undergraduate degree who's working as a barista at Starbucks would be like the classic example. Um, why would Amazon necessarily go and hire somebody who's relatively low skill or maybe has skills that are uh, simply not very relevant anymore, like raising coal out of the ground when they could hire someone with a, a good general education, maybe a liberal arts degree who will in turn have a little bit more flexibility and have more baseline knowledge that they can use to relate to new knowledge and more rapidly acquire new skills. Um, so I would say that there's a big enough buffer of underemployed Americans at this point that those would be the first people you would go toward, not necessarily the people who went straight from high school to the coal mine. Do you have any idea how big the population of these type of people is, this type of people that are not, uh, don't have a pliant enough uh, way of doing work that they can retrain quickly and, and, and get some job that this new workplace can offer? Well, to put things in perspective, if you take a college degree as a rough barometer for um, the ability to adapt and, and change careers, which I, I think an undergraduate degree uh, will instill upon the person who uh, gets it a pretty good pragmatic uh, ability to adopt new skills and flex with the situation, I would say that there are, there's only about a third of Americans who have a four-year degree. So that leaves two-thirds who don't, many of whom are working as truckers, who are working as coal miners, who are working in declining manufacturing jobs, who will need to either go back and get a four-year degree, which may be plausible. There are some great low-cost, flexible alternatives for adults to do that, or will be able to go to a vocational program like a coding boot camp or a uh, data engineering focus boot camp or some of these other specific skills that will help them. Maybe even just a customer service type boot camp, if you want to call it a boot camp. I'm not a huge fan of the term boot camp, but basically a way that they can get quick on the job training that employers used to give people all the time. Uh, the training budgets for most American firms has dropped precipitously to almost nothing. It's a shadow of what it used to be. And the assumption is that universities are going to do all the training now. Well, what do you do when only a third of people have gone through university? You have to raise training budgets back up. So I would love to see Amazon have really great training budgets and perhaps even work with the U.S. government to get subsidies for those. Do you have any perspective? Or how, I mean, how much of this problem is a mindset problem where if these people who are currently unemployable or who are even, you know, basically, so you're talking about this idea that there's a surplus of underemployed people. And even if we could create more 
kind of like semi-technical jobs or low technical jobs that would be that would pay a little better the underemployed people would be sucked up, up into those jobs first from my point of view there is also just this mindset problem if if uh, you know Hasib, I know you listened to the complacency episode with Tyler Cowen recently but that was the big thrust of what he was saying was just that people in America there is a sense of complacency and uh, it's not really like a lack of opportunity for retraining or resources it's it's a it's a mindset problem i uh i would be very skeptical of that claim first of all i would say that there are a lot of places where there is genuine lack of access to resources to training to even 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 having figures like like quincy uh to to be able to tell you like hey this is actually something that you can just do and it's completely normal to go out and retrain yourself and gain a new set of skills um there there are a lot of places in american society and a lot of um a lot of intersections of identity within american society that make that very difficult um so <clears throat> i would definitely say that I don't believe at all that it's purely a function of mindset. I do think that it has, I, I do agree with you that it has become more ingrained in our culture. Uh, the, th- there has been some stagnation of the kind of entrepreneurial thrust that I think is necessary to thrive in a rapidly changing world. And, you know, I, I was just thinking as Quincy was talking about the, the, the shrinking of, or the shrinking of many budgets of companies for training. Really, that's in large part a tragedy of the commons type problem where everybody would like for everybody to be spending more on training. Nobody wants to be the one person spending that money. Uh, but the reason why probably more companies could do that in the past was because of this assumption that if a, if an employee joins your company, they're likely to stay there for a very long time. So you're very likely to reap the benefits of their, of their growth as they develop as individuals. And with, I think, you know, generations that tend to move between jobs more frequently and more rapidly, uh, and tend to expect more, uh, not just, not just more, um, not just sort of more perks, but also more, uh, meaning and just more, more demanding generally out of their careers, uh, for, for that generation, I can, I can see why it kind of puts a lot of double binds into the, the employment market where, you know, if, if all candidates are essentially trying to stay for roughly two years and then do something else, it does make it very hard for companies to solve this tragedy of the commons problem of where do people get trained and how do we, how do we, you know, reinforce the norms in a society of, hey, you know, uh, you should, you should experiment. You should try out new careers and learn out, learn new things because the world is going to change rapidly. And, you know, it, you may not be best prepared for that by simply staying at your, at your local, Sort of your local optima, which might be, you know, being the biggest, baddest, coolest coal miner in West Virginia or whatever. Hasib, you started off as a poker player and then you transitioned to working a desk job. Uh, I kind of had a similar. Tra- okay. A di- <laughs> Sometimes a standing desk job. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. a standing desk job. Uh, Quincy, you started off, I think you're, if I'm correct, your first, you know, job out of, you know, you worked out of school and then of you gradually transitioned to a entrepreneurial role after you had saved up some money so you were you worked in education you directed schools and then you gradually transitioned into entrepreneurship starting free code camp and so i think all three of us have had different parts of our life where we've been working at home in a sort of self-directed fashion 
and then other sections of life when we're working in an office as part of a team. And I'm wondering how you two see those those different modalities of work, um, you know, looking back and then looking into the future of, you know, what is the best way for individuals to work? What are the trends that you're seeing? Quincy, why don't you go first? I have been working remotely in my home or in various co-working spaces over the past four years. Um, I haven't, Free Code Camp doesn't have an office. We're an all remote team. So, I have become very accustomed to just getting out of bed and going over to my desk and sitting down and starting working. And it took me a while to get ramped up to that because the previous 10 years where I was working as a teacher and as a school director, I reported to a physical office and I had that extrinsic pressure. Like I'm in a workplace environment, I'm dressed in a suit, I'm looking around and I'm seeing people who need me to help them do something, or I've got uh, you know, the phone ringing and my boss is calling me, things like that. So, um, it, it was a pretty stark transition and the way I handled it was moving into co-working spaces that like I won at various hackathons. Um, and so you, and gradually you, you won a co-working space. Well, I won <laughs> desks at co-working space. Like, so one of the <laughs> common prizes you can get at, at uh, hackathons that start, um, hackathons in San Francisco is like, free co-working space, for example, for six months at a, a space. And I did that, I think, two or three times and had two or three different offices I worked out of for free, which was a really nice perk. Um, and I think for a lot of people, they need that extrinsic environment of I'm in work mode, I have the coffee burner, and I have the landline that rings occasionally, and I have my computer that's on my desk. And then for other people, they really relish the flexibility of being able to wake up at 10 a.m. and not commute anywhere and then work until late in the evening um, and take breaks throughout the day. So I think working remotely is something that a lot of people can adjust to. It didn't come naturally to me, but over time I acclimated to it and now I'm extremely happy. And there have been some studies, um, the most prominent was a study by Stanford where they looked at empl uh, employees who worked remotely at a big Chinese company called C-Trip, which is basically like Expedia in China. And uh, some of the findings, in short, were that people who worked remotely tended to enjoy their work more. They tended to be more productive and they tended to get promoted less often <laughs> because they were, I think, invisible to their superiors. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember reading about that study, and that, that's it's funny that I, I don't remember taking away the conclusion that they didn't get promoted because they weren't around to play those kinds of corporate gamesmanship and jockeying for the highest position. So, Hasib, what has been your experience with the two different modalities of work? Yeah, I mean, it's been uh, it's been a while since I was a professional poker player, so I don't I don't have the freshness that Quincy does, or or you know, it's possible that if I was doing it again now, I might have, have a different approach to it. But I remember at the time when I was a professional poker player, you know, because I started playing poker professionally when I was 16 years old, and you know, essentially since since I ever did anything you know, financially productive, uh, or <laughs> arguably maybe unproductive. Um, 
I've, I've, I was always doing it for myself. So I really had no, uh, you know, I, I had never worked a job and had a boss. You know, that was just totally alien to me. The idea of like coming into a place where you had to be dressed up and say hello to people and good morning and like that. I, I never had that experience during the entire time that I was essentially self-employed. So for me, I was always actually really fascinated by that whole world and what that might be like to go and work in an office and have a boss and, you know, uh, be have your success contingent on some kind of corporate political structure. Um, so now I've had that, you know, I've been, I've been working for a couple of companies for a couple of years and, um, I know, I, I obviously know what this is like and it's, it's, it's nothing particularly magical, but I would say that I think, I think there are from, from my own observations, both about myself and about other people, I think there, there's an easy fallacy you can fall into when you talk about remote work. And I think a lot of people tend to make this fallacy. It's the same fallacy that people get when they talk about nutrition, where they kind of, you know, they say, okay, there's this, there's this study that shows this about nutrition, this study that shows that about nutrition. Therefore, here's what you should do. And you should also do this and you should intermittently fast and you should never eat carbs and you should always eat carbs and you should like do it, you know, every other week. I think the problem with that is that it, it sort of assumes a – there's this presumption of a certain scientific model that there is one truth about nutrition and we're trying to discover that truth. And once we know that truth, we can apply it to everybody kind of you know across the board. And I think it's, it's more and more obvious to researchers in nutrition at this point that actually there is no single truth about what nutrition is good for everybody because your, you know, your epigenetics and your genetics generally and also just your environment and the way your body has kind of acclimated to different things affects what you should eat and affects the way that nutrition interacts with your body. It's a complex system. It's not something that's just completely determined by the fact that you're a homo sapien. I think the same thing is true for remote work versus working at, a, at an office. I think it depends on the company. I think it depends on the person. And I think there are companies where remote work is, is probably completely, uh, just, just a nightmare and, and messed up and doesn't really work well at all. And there are probably companies where it works really well. And there are probably people who do really poorly when they work remotely and people who do really well when they work in an office. And so I think this idea that there, there, there should be one ground truth is just missing something really important about that landscape. I think one thing we can both agree on when it comes to the working from home, or all three of us can agree on this, when it comes to the idea of working from home is the necessity of self-discipline and figuring out a daily framework that you can adhere to. Um, Hasib, I remember reading your your book, The Philosophy of Poker, and this uh idea of self-discipline is really a theme throughout the book and it almost you know reading it it really seemed like this was maybe the perhaps the biggest lesson that you took away from poker was the idea that you really have to master yourself and mastering yourself as a holistic activity uh and then breaking down the specific uh, uh silos in self-mastery where it's like okay how are you getting enough sleep every day how are you preventing yourself from tilting um, and figuring out all these things, it's much different when you're working in an office and you have a social uh, uh, schema around you that is enforcing certain things upon you. You know, I, I remember when I was a solo poker player, because I didn't have that social framework around me, uh, I think it caused me to become a little bit, uh, you know, screwed up at some point and, and really that I mean that's why I you know ended up not doing so well at poker at a certain point like that's why I ended up leaving the game you know 
before you did, perhaps before the the biggest aspects of the crash, is because I really couldn't handle that solitude, and I couldn't, I didn't get to that self mastery uh, earlier on. I mean, I I I don't know that I did, and I don't know that most of the people who are successful poker players do actually attain what I what I would consider to be self mastery. I, mean, I think I, I probably have more self discipline than most people, and I think that's that's you know a common refrain that I hear when, when people learn that like, you know, I, I, I live a pretty minimalistic life and I, and I enforce a lot of constraints on myself. Um, I think the interesting thing sort of tying this, this thread back to the question of, of, you know, working in an office as opposed to remote work is that I think, you know, the culture of working in an office is kind of designed for the average employee to basically maximize the experience of the average employee. If you're not the average employee, then it's quite likely that the optimizations that are made for the average employee are not going to be particularly useful to you inside of an office setting, right? And so I think that's very much true for me that I, I'm somebody who's, you know, I'm intrinsically, uh, very, very, um, motivated by just getting lots of work done. And there are, there are a lot of things inside of an, if you work in an office that are actually not designed to optimize how much work you get done. They're designed to optimize basically your longevity and you feeling good about the company and you feeling happy and, uh, and they work for the majority of people, you know? So like, I don't know, things like celebrating everyone's birthday or, you know, having frequent team offsites or, you know, the kinds of things that you see at tech companies all the time that are, you know, uh, or like having lots of meetings where you're celebrating everybody's wins and things like that. All these things are clearly important, but they're also important for the average engineer. They're not important for every single engineer. And, you know, I can imagine for somebody like Quincy or maybe somebody like yourself who, um, are probably outside of, of that, that, that median, uh, employee that you're not going to see a lot of value in a lot of those rituals, you know, and in a way those rituals aren't really for you. They're really for, they're, they're for everyone else. Uh, and so that's one thing that I've certainly noticed. At the same time, the structure, the, some of the structure that gets imposed by being in an, an office environment and being in a company culture, um, I do think is useful for me for structuring work. Because that's one thing that I, I always struggled with when I was a poker player was uh, enforcing structure on myself without having any external constraints. You know, so if, if you're a poker player and you're not really feeling playing poker that day, Nobody's going to make you play, you know, and certainly nobody's going to make you play well. Uh, whereas if you're, if, if you're coming into an office and you're surrounded by people who are expecting you to perform at a certain level, um, that, that is just enormously motivating for you to not just kind of slack off and do nothing or avoid your work or just, you know, not, uh, put in the kind of vigilance that you would need if a lot of people are depending on the work you're doing. I would also add to what Haseeb just said that, the best way to kind of create that sort of artificial extrinsic motivation that you could replicate by having an office where people are counting on you uh, would probably be to make some sort of uh, routine that is the product of like a strongly enforced commitment. If you have some sort of commitment device, like the equivalent of a swear jar, like every day that you're, that you, sleep in instead of going to work that you somehow punish yourself and, and you somehow condition yourself into a state where you don't need those outside pressures to perform. Um, one book that I read that I strongly recommend anybody who's considering doing any sort of creative endeavor, uh, certainly if they're doing it on their own outside of an office environment, outside of some structure that's going to ensure their performance is The War of Art by Stephen Pressman. Pressfield. 
Um, that book was pretty amazing for me. And to summarize his approach, he sits down and writes four hours a day. So he's a novelist and he worked as a taxi driver and did a whole bunch of odd jobs until his forties when he finally got the self-discipline to sit down and actually start writing. And his secret was just to write at least four hours a day, you know, um, no excuses. So by getting into that rhythm and sustaining it over years, he became very productive because four hours a day for him was a sustainable pace that he could commit to. Quincy, I remember having this conversation with you a while ago when we were on a run after we had both had some tacos and it was like a temperate uh, California night and it was we were having a great run, but we were having this co- weird conversation about this idea that, I mean, you you articulated to me as feeling like a sense of disembodiment, like you felt like a, almost like a disembodied ephemeral online presence because you spend most of your day alone at home while you're with your your uh, baby daughter who is getting older rapidly I'm sure so she can keep you some some company and keep you anchored in the real world but for the most part much of your interaction your influence with the rest of the world is virtual you're spending your day at home on the computer totally silent and this is this is also how I experience the world most of my day is spent doing research, being on the computer, creating podcasts and stuff. And then I, you know, I engage with people uh, over the microphone like this. But it's it's a very different sort of work experience than anything that I think people did, you know, five or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And it's kind of strange because, you know, you get an influence with thousands of people on a daily basis. I mean, Free Code Camp reaches tens of thousands of people but you yourself are somewhat isolated and you know like you said you know you almost feel like this like your existence is almost it's it's mostly online it's like your influence in the world is mostly online you could just be a disembodied brain in a vat somewhere and people would not know the difference between that and Quincy Larson what are the psychic adjustments that you've had to make because of this mode of work I haven't really felt obligated to make any psychic adjustments, if you will. Um, I just got back from an incredible conference in New York City. I literally just flew in about an hour before we started talking. And it was so energizing to be around so many people in person. And, I, and you know, it was this big conference put on by Saran uh, from Code Newbie, And she did an amazing job of bringing a lot of great speakers together and keeping like a really high level of energy throughout the entire conference. And I probably had, you know, more than a hundred conversations. I probably shook more than a hundred people's hands and, and learned more than a hundred names and tried to learn some of the stories behind those people and, and where they're heading. And I remember after like one of the long breaks where I was talking to people in the hall, going and sitting down and being in that, that room over at Microsoft and Times Square, surrounded by about 300 people. And I remember looking around and thinking like, wow, like these entities that I interact with online, they're like, they're actual human beings. They're, they're brains that are wrapped in this body. They're atoms and they're sitting around me (laughs) in physical space. And like the absurdity of the situation uh, did dawn on me that I was thinking in those terms, which would be kind of unthinkable 
for somebody even 20 or 30 years ago. Like, of course, that's how it is. But for me, it seemed like some massive revelation in the, in the moment. <laughs> I, I think probably the only comparable experience to that, I, I, so I share some of that sentiment that, that you just expressed there, Quincy, that like, when I meet people who, you know, have read my blog or have heard my story and who, you know, maybe have heard some of my interviews on Software Engineering Daily, when when they meet me, it's oh, there's something there's some surreality to it that I can't quite shake. <laughs> that's like I don't like is is this really me? Did you just read some like I don't know? They, they have this strange built up uh, a picture of who I am that feels kind of divorced from my day to day life. Um, but it's it's probably the same thing that I imagine if you were you know uh, if you were a writer back in I don't know like you know, the 1900s or something it was probably the same kind of relationship where you you write you send off to your one editor who you know and then one day you walk into a parlor and everybody there knows your name and you know maybe even knows your life story um, that it is it is a very strange relationship to have with another person is the one where they know who you are and you have no idea who they are uh, and somehow they know this this part of you, or they know you through this lens. Um, it's something I've never, I've never quite been totally comfortable with. Asymmetric um, intimacy. Asymmetric. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of what it feels like to me. But uh, I don't know. I, 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 when I when I feel that, I realize that I'm not super cut out for this. But I I do it anyway because apparently no one else is. Well, it's probably only going to get weirder uh, as time goes on, and our ability to interface with lots of people and project our thoughts onto the internet uh, too many people is is going to get more developed, uh, more enriched. Um, okay, so we talked about one side of the AI coin, and Hasib, I always like talking to you about uh, AI risk, uh, even though neither of us is very qualified to talk about it. Um, but I think, I think you and I both share an aspiration to be, to be well-versed in it. I mean, I think we're both kind of taking a, gradually taking a more serious look at, you know, how does machine learning work? How does deep learning work? Rather than just kind of like, you know, brushing our hands against the contours of deep learning, we're really trying to get an understanding for what it is because we're realizing that most of the people that talk about it are just pontificating about it and they don't really know what they're talking about um, and it's really hard to draw a distinction between who those pontificators are and who the actual experts are and you know I think the only way to do this is to actually gain an expertise in it or gain some expertise in it so that you can kind of understand what the you know what's going on um, but you know uh, since we're not there yet we can still we can still just like <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah let's pontificate, let's, anyway. let's pontificate yeah so okay this AI risk stuff, you and I both follow, uh, you know, the philosophers that are talking about this a lot, like Sam Harris and, you know, just all the other people, the kinds of people he has on the show, uh, on his on his podcast, the Sam Harris uh, Waking Up podcast. And, um, you know, there's a number of other shows that, that go into this and you know, there's some great books about this. But basically, we're, we're still in the pretty early days of discussing AI risk and understanding what AI risk actually means. Um, and yet... You have somebody like Andrew Andrew Ng who says that AI risk is as crazy as Mars overpopulation, and um, this specific quote is is something that I think about a lot. I'm like, why is it that somebody that is so deeply involved in the machine learning space can say such an extreme statement that is conflicted with many other people in the space who seem 
equally qualified, if not more qualified. Is do you think somebody that is is saying something like that is it is it completely unfounded or is he just trying to draw attention to himself? What do you think is going on there? Well, definitely not. Well, I mean, I, I can't say definitely not the latter. But what what I would say is that first of all, his claim that worrying about AI worrying about AI risk is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. Um, I think that claim is is kind of true. In I, I wouldn't put it quite in those terms, but I think they're not uh, they're not incompatible. The claims that one we're really really far away from AI risk, uh, or really really far away in all likelihood from uh, uh, general general AI or AGI, um, and. It may also be true that it is really important that we invest right now in AI security because when it gets there, it could have catastrophic consequences if we don't. Like to me, I kind of imagine, let's say the year is, you know, um, uh, I don't know, let's say the year is like 1920 and people are just starting to put a lot of, uh, a lot of research into nuclear physics. Okay. And you know, you got people like, uh, uh, you know, you got people like, uh, Heisenberg or, uh, whoever. I, f- I forget what the names of, uh, some of these famous physicists at this point who are kind of in the very early stages of figuring out all this, all this, uh, physics and chemical reactions. Um, if someone were to say at that point, oh, worrying about, you know, the, the ethics of nuclear bombs is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars, uh, they would have been right that they were still many years away from getting to the place where they could actually build nuclear bombs. They would also have been right. Uh, sorry, it would also have been right to say, well, yes, that's true. But once we get there, we're going to be really glad that we had 30 years of like, you know, talking about this and developing people's intuitions and thinking about, you know, safety mechanisms for nuclear arsenals uh, that really have, you know, if, if you read some of the stories about how close we have been at times to essentially nuclear holocausts of varying scales, and we've only avoided them purely out of essentially accident, uh, is, is, is just, it, it, it's kind of harrowing. And it should tell you that, man, I really wish that people had been working on this for 30 years, such that every single nuclear bomb that was ever built had just built into it really, really robust safety mechanisms. Uh, and, and they, they weren't. And so I think the concern you, uh, the, the concern is completely compatible to say like, yes, Andrew Ng, you're absolutely right. Uh, very likely. And I, and I think you should take many of the cutting edge researchers, um, you, you should you should accept their claims. I think at face value that yes, th- it's very very hard to see how we go from where we are right now to general intelligence. There are there are tons and tons of problems that intervene between those two poles, uh, and I completely agree with that. And that seems to me to be true. That said. One, human beings really, really suck at predicting the pace of innovation. Sometimes we predict it too fast. Sometimes we predict it too slow. Uh, if we predict it too slow, that might be disastrous. Um, second, even if, let's say this is 30 years away, let's say it's 40 years away, which maybe Andrew Ng would say it's 100 years away. Um, I think it's the kind of problem that, you know, given the amount of money that's spent right now on AI risk mitigation – relative to AI research is is probably more than, you know, uh, I would guess at least 10,000 to one, if not a million to one, uh, in terms of the amount of funding spent on just researching AI and getting there faster, 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 faster to improving the state of AI, as opposed to, hey, when we get there, let's make sure it's safe. And it is actually a really hard problem that Maybe it takes 50 years in order to solve that problem. Well, let's, let's get started now. So by the time the second problem is solved, we also have the safety thing figured out. So that's roughly the way that I see the, uh, the difference between the, the people who are calling for attention and fear potentially or, or caution about AI risk and the people who say it's very far away. Uh, I think it's likely that both of those narratives are true. 
I would also kind of jump in and agree with Hasib here. The uh, that's an excellent parallel between the time when we split the atom and when we actually had operational nuclear warheads. That it's it probably seemed like it would be a lot longer than it was, and it, you know these are complex situations, complex technology. There's no way we can really forecast it with any degree of accuracy. We we should adhere to the precautionary principle, and we should invest time and money and public discourse in talking about how we should regulate these technologies. So the last uh, topic roundtable I did with uh, Caleb Meredith and Cortland Allen, we concluded or sorry, we started with the topic of Facebook. So I want to conclude this episode with the topic of Facebook. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with people about Facebook recently, and I went to F8 this week, so I spent a lot of time thinking about it this week. Um, How do you two use Facebook? I basically just open it up and... um, Unfortunately, Facebook's notification system isn't like really robust enough for the amount of notifications I get. Um, I'm I'm not trying to brag. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> seriously, I've ever heard. <laughs> I, I'm uh, I'm part of a, and it's not because I'm like super famous and everybody wants to get a hold of me. It's just because I'm a member of too many Facebook groups, and I, I like I'm a member of more than a thousand Free Code Camp Facebook groups, and every time somebody does anything in one of those groups. I get a notification. So basically the notifications, I don't even bother opening it. Um, what I do is I open up messages because people will message me in Facebook. And, um, it, and whenever somebody sends me something through another medium, like somebody will email me a link to a Facebook pa- post, then I'll open it and jump in there. Uh, but that's basically the extent of my use of Facebook, both posting on Freeco camps, Facebook page, which I control. And, um, checking my messages that people send me. Yeah, I would say my, my use of Facebook is pretty comparable. I'm not I'm not quite on the scale of popularity as Quincy clearly because my notifications tab is is like usually less than less than 100, I guess. Uh, but I would say yeah, I think you know, Facebook wants you to use Facebook as like a, a sort of extension of your social life. And that's not really the way that I use Facebook. And it's the way that I choose not to use Facebook. I, you know, I don't write a lot about my life. I don't, I don't sort of use it as a way to commune with people. It's, it's really for me, um, a platform on which one to be reachable, to share things that I think are uh, pieces of content that people might be interested in. Um, but it's not really about me broadcasting my life, you know, and, uh, I, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Facebook is, is good enough to be a flexible tool for different sort of cultural use cases. Right. That's how I feel about it, too. It is a tool. And, you know, I was having a debate with a friend online recently, a friend who is not in tech and who is also not on Facebook. And he was arguing that Facebook is this addictive thing and, you know, it's not a good thing. And I was saying, no, it's a tool. And, you know, people who get, people who complain about getting addicted to Facebook are, like people who are complaining about syringes because they get addicted to heroin. Like you can't blame the tool for your own addiction to it. I, I don't know that I would agree entirely with that with that analogy. Um, I would say it's more like blaming someone for getting addicted to gambling. 
uh, syringes obviously have a lot of really important use cases, and heroin is kind of an off off label usage for a syringe. Uh, most syringe usage is is for pretty good reasons, uh, and I you know for Facebook, Facebook is clearly designed, and it was it was designed with the particular intent of getting people to use it the way that most people do use it, which is essentially as an extension of their of their social existence. You know, it's it's another um, it it. Yeah, like Facebook has dramatically changed the way that a certain generation of people uh, see themselves and see each other and connect to each other uh, in society. And I think, and Facebook is also designed to be addictive. It's designed to uh, try to to usurp a role that was once taken up by other things in your life. Uh, and that's how they make money. They make money by having you there as long as possible so they can advertise to you as much as possible. So I think... To say that it's to say that Facebook is just a tool is, I think, I mean, it clearly is a tool. But to say that it's just a tool, I think, is like saying that gambling is just a tool because you can make money on it and be a professional poker player. You certainly can. Um, I would say that if you look on on the whole, gambling tends to have pretty deleterious effects uh, on the majority of the people you're going to see in a casino on any given night. And I, you know, I think you and I probably both experienced this if you've ever been to Vegas and you walk around, you know, the slot machines in a casino. What you don't get is a sense that these people are using a tool particularly well, what you feel is that these people are being exploited by something that is designed to exploit them. It was it was you know, very, very, very craftily designed by some of the smartest people in the world to optimally exploit them for as much money as possible. Well, okay. And maybe. It seems to me like a better world would be one where that maybe didn't exist or the incentives weren't there for that exploitation to happen. Well, maybe, but for you and I, uh, gambling was a tool for anti-fragility. We grew up in the flames of poker and those emotional difficulties that we encountered as poker players as gamblers building up a resistance to the psychological uh, brutality that daily gambling wages against your brain actually has tremendous value later in life so perhaps more people should be gambling at a younger age because it helps you develop anti-fragility. The world is a place where things will be beckoning to you with addictive tendencies, whether it is your smartphone or Facebook or email or Twitter or, or anything or heroin. And you have to <laughs> you have to avoid these things. I mean, nobody's I mean, obviously Heroin's a little bit different because it's like, you know, people invite you to be on Twitter, to invite you to be on Facebook, and you have social pressure to do that, and it's socially acceptable social pressure, whereas nobody is, like, offering you the heroin and saying, hey, you really, really need to try out this heroin and connect with me on heroin. I think, actually, some people do sometimes do that. Um, but what, so what I, what I would say is that uh, – so the claim you're making that, you know, poker uh, or gambling generally, uh, you know, it, it has it, – basically, it can bear all of these fruits. And if you only, you know, uh, take the right approach to it or you learn the right lessons from it, then you can extract these fruits the same way that, that, you know, maybe Quincy and I can extract some fruits from Facebook without completely subsuming our lives into it. Um, and I, 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 that's true. And I, and I take your point. Your, your point is well made. But I, what I would say is that I, th- I would say that for the average poker player, I think if you actually look at what does a life of poker actually do to the average person who plays poker, um, 
I would say probably on average, it's net negative or close to it. And I, I would I would contend that the same thing is likely true for Facebook, that the average person who spends a large amount of their time on Facebook probably does not have a marginal improvement in their life relative to if they had not, they, before they had uh, invested their identity so much into into Facebook. And that's not to say that Facebook should not exist, right? That, that's not what I'm arguing. And I'm not arguing that it needs to be regulated or anything like that. I just think that, um, I don't think those claims are, again, I don't think those claims are incompatible. You can say that there's a lot of value to be had out of a social network or out of something like Facebook or Twitter. And I think you can also say that the average person is not likely to extract those fruits. And on average, if you are somebody who's using Facebook or Twitter a lot, chances are it is producing a net negative in your life. I would definitely uh, echo that sentiment. And I'd like to just add on the topic of poker, I think the two of you, you know, this conversation is very much the victim of survivorship bias. I mean, two out of the three people on this call have had a positive experience, or I would say a net positive, at least financially, experience with with poker. Um, And Facebook, I think all three of us have benefited greatly from Facebook as a tool to communicate with people. Um, at the same time, I know plenty of people who are sitting around moping around their apartments, probably miserable because whenever they open up Facebook, which the, the average Facebook user uses it about an hour a day, um, they're just seeing all their friends out partying and, and having a great time. And they're seeing all these great accomplishments and uh, they're feeling inadequate as a result. They're like, why it is my daily life they look around their apartment and they think this is my daily life. And then they look at Facebook and they see all these amazing things happening for other people. And really what they're seeing is like the highly polished highlights of other people's lives. So I think it can, I I think there may already be a lot of research that documents how this can cause depression. And uh, certainly on the note of comparing Facebook to a casino, just like there were a whole lot of geniuses and a whole lot of, time and energy spent on maximizing the efficiency of casinos and their weird carpets and all these other things for distracting and steering people over to the slot machines. Uh, Facebook's the same way. They have a huge team of user experience designers. They do a ton of AB testing and their goal, make no mistake, (laughs) the goal of Facebook is to get you to spend as much time on Facebook as possible because that's how they make their money is through advertising to you. And if you read uh, the excellent new book by Tim Wu, uh, the, the same guy who coined the term net neutrality, he wrote a book recently called the attention merchants and they talk, he, he has an entire chapter dedicated just to Facebook. And uh, I definitely think that Facebook is uh, a dangerous thing. And for many people, it is a net negative. If if in the right hands, of course, it's a net positive. I definitely think net, uh, Facebook's a net positive for me. It's a, it's definitely a net positive for many of the people in the free cocaine community who use Facebook's groups functionality. It's definitely a net positive when I can go on there and announce some big life change and my entire extended family who happen to be on Facebook can see that. So it, I think the main problem with Facebook is their incentives are not aligned directly with us. They built the tools to attract us, but there's also a whole lot of uh, other negative stuff associated with that that a less vigilant person would fall prey to. Well, I want to thank you both for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. A lot of interesting topics. Basically nothing relating to software engineering directly. So... (laughs) 
We did get to talk about heroin, though, so we're cl- close enough. 